So welcome to this week's podcast by GPs for GPs at all stages of their training. My name is Dr. Susie Scarlett. I'm a GP in Edinburgh and I'm a GP trainer. I also have an interest in diabetes and I'm here with Dr. Callum Lees this week um, to discuss all things cardiovascular medicine with our guest speaker. The aim of this podcast is to provide CPD for primary care staff around physical activity to inspire primary care staff to take up more physical activity and promote this to their patients, to educate the listeners in the latest knowledge, current guidelines, national and local opportunities and further resources and education and to transform primary care. Callum. Thanks Susie. I'm Callum. I'm a GP trainee in Aberfeldy and a researcher at the University of Dundee. In this episode we're going to be interviewing Dr. Edney Boston Griffiths, who's a cardiologist with an interest in lifestyle medicine. He did his undergrad at Barts in London, uh, an MD at UCL also in London, and a fellowship in interventional cardiology in Canada. He's currently an interventional cardiology consultant in Dorset, and has got his own practice combining traditional care with lifestyle to improve cardiac health. Welcome, Edney. Uh, thank you, Callum. Thank you, Susie, for inviting me to this, um, what I... Um, sure will be a, a wonderful podcast. Um, as you've mentioned, um, um, I'm based here at Dorset. I work at Dorset County Hospital. I'm an interventional cardiologist and I've been uh, based here for about three years now. Um, I trained, I did my training at uh, within the East of England Deanery. And um, yeah, since starting um, practicing uh, here in Dorset, you know, I've got grown to learn that we were dealing with a a slightly um, an aging demographic. However, they have got a, a longer lifespan compared to the national average. Uh, so they tend to be healthier, they've retired here, uh, and they've got a, a, a relatively uh, higher standard of living. So it's been exciting to, to work within this part of the world. Edney, tell me, how did you end up interested in lifestyle medicine? Well, what inter- I mean, I've always been interested in, in um, fitness, exercise, you may say, well-being and healthy living as part of my personal uh, uh, um, life journey. Um, you know, my, my exercise involves resistance training, uh, endurance. In fact, I've ran a, a couple of half marathons, including the London Half Marathon. Uh, and I'm into yoga. I try to, you know, do that, you know, at least once or twice a week. Um, I also do martial arts as well. I do Wing Chun, which is a Chinese martial arts. And I've been doing this since starting medical school. So in and around my lifestyle, I've always had the, a, a passion for, for, you know, being active. Um, certainly when I practice medicine, I do see patients with obviously the severer, more complex cases of coronary artery disease. You know, I'll treat them with pharmacology um, or, you know, procedure-based uh, um, uh, treatments with stenting. And they've always asked me, you know, um, what do I do now, doctor? You know, you've done this treatment. Where do I go from here? And I've always sort of made a reference to my lifestyle in terms of, you know, foods to, you know, to eat, um, being active. Um, and it was great to, to find um, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, which obviously provides an evidence base uh, when it comes to these strategies and, and way of living. So that's what really got me into looking at, the BSLM a bit further, uh, and now I'm in a in a position whereby you know made my way through the online learning, and the idea is at some point you know getting to the to the to the diploma level. So you know, I mean, certainly I find it very beneficial. I think that's where medicine is going in terms of combining conventional 
strategies um, with lifestyle medicine and preventative care. I think there is going to be a space whereby they should really go hand in hand. And, and obviously, the education from BSLM has highlighted that uh, uh, um, that space. I think a lot of the evidence came from the godfathers of lifestyle medicine across in the States, didn't it, as well? And, you know, in a previous po podcast that I recorded with Dr. Emma Lunan, we were talking about physical activity and chronic disease, um, that it could, you know, all could benefit from physical activity. And this is where lots of this evidence lies. I think the problem that we have and we're sort of working against is that, you know, media sometimes misrepresents some of the studies that are done, you know, and the studies are done to help us, but then they get misrepresented um, Callum and I were talking about the um, the recent media messaging on the association between daily step count and all-cause cardiovascular mortality, um, this fantastic meta-analysis, but they twisted things on their head and they said 4,000 steps is enough. That's all you need to do. What's your comment on that? No, I mean, I mean, again, I think this is a, certainly a space whereby we as health professionals should really lead up on that uh, in order to at least attenuate some of the the, the sort of the media experts who may you know misguide the the, the, the message uh, I think I think it's, it's long been established that um, you need to do 150 minutes uh, per week of exercise um, or if and that's moderate exercise or as high as uh, 75 minutes of more um, high intensity exercise if we want to be in a position whereby we've seen the the benefit the cardiovascular benefits long term um, and, and we can go from, you know, and I'm sure we're going to go at some point down in, in the podcast to talk about how this impacts on cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension and, and uh, dyslipidemia. But I think certainly we have to be leaders in this space, not only to define what we mean by exercise in terms of the physiology, but also the recommendations and the prescribing of exercise to our patients, because it shouldn't be taken lightly. Whilst we know that um, uh, it's, it's unequivocal that exercise is beneficial. We have to consider certain special cases, you know, like patients who already have pre-existing high blood pressure, you know, certainly it needs, it needs us as healthcare professionals to lead and direct, uh, um, patients, uh, patients with valve disease. So I think, you know, we have to ensure that the message is clear with patients. It's not just uh, whatever they see in the media, they need to use us as a source of, um, of direction. I totally agree, Edney. I think that's really important. That paper in particular by Banakatal, which Susie was talking about, the take-home message in the paper itself is really clear, which is more exercise is better, but some is better than none. And I think actually that's a really good policy for us as, as healthcare professionals to hold. If, if people ask us how much should we do, we should say, the more you do, the better, but you know, some is better than none. No, no, absolutely. And again, you know, um, when we look at the data in terms of not only managing the blood pressure, but when you talk about end organ damage, when you talk about the changes that happened within the heart as a result of, for example, high blood pressure, we know that certainly walking the dog is much better than being inactive, uh, but also high intensity it's better than just moderately walking the dog. So there is a gradual effect when it comes to exercise. But, but you're absolutely right. Cert certainly, some is certainly better than uh, um, nothing at all. I think, Susie, I've maybe steal your sandwiches a bit here. This is something you, you always mention. I love it. There's the WHO, every move counts, which is a, a 
publication that they released, I think it was in 2018, but they got this great graph which shows that the benefits are greater the more inactive you are. And so I think that's really helpful to bear in mind. If you do nothing, you've got the most to gain from doing something, regardless of what that is. And, and, and I mean, I understand you're, you're obviously based in Copenhagen. I mean, do you find that there are differences in terms of, you know, the level of inactivity here in the UK compared to maybe our counterparts in, in Europe? Good question. I'm back in the UK now. <laughs> but okay, back in the yeah, definitely. I think one of the things which was amazing about Denmark and, and probably Northern Europe in general was the infrastructure that was there to facilitate activity and particularly around cycling. I think it was almost hard not to cycle in Denmark. It was just everywhere. So I think that that was the big difference is, is that people, when we talk about physical activity or exercise, I think people often think, oh, it's me adding an extra 20 minutes into my day. Whereas in Denmark, it was just replacing your drive with a cycle. It was a, it was a form of commuting. And I think that was really really kind of interesting insight and, and hopefully something that we can copy and echo and, and learn from here. Absolutely, absolutely. Callum, I'm a big advocate for the active commute, as, you, as you'll know. And I think, you know, the, the planning agencies up and down the United Kingdom have got something to answer for, haven't they, in terms of making physical activity um, accessible. But today we wanted to talk to you, Edney, about um, how we can manage high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Um, you know, when people say to us that they want, they want to manage without medications, but what does this look like? My, my philosophy, and I think that, that and, and it's, it's, it concurs with that of the experts, is when it comes to cardiovascular risk, we have to look at it in its entirety. Um, you know, you as GPs, you have the Q risk score, which obviously looks at the, a wide range of risk factors before deciding to initiate a, a, a patient or, on medication. And I think that is certainly a, a good starting point. Um, I think one can't really take an isolated high, high cholesterol without you know, looking at the fact that whether or not they're diabetic or not, or whether or not they have high blood pressure or the family history or whether they're a smoker, because certainly those obviously play an impact. Um, if we take blood pressure uh, um, in its isolation, I think certainly exercise alone has a role for stage one hypertension. So for example, a patient otherwise free of any other cardiovascular risk, uh, you see them in your clinic, and they have a systolic blood pressure uh, just uh, over 190, 140 over 90, then I think uh, um, introducing exercise or prescribing exercise um, as a first stage, um, whilst obviously addressing other lifestyle factors, could be a good starting point. Once you get to a point, and this is what was, was clear on the evidence, uh, certainly presented within the conference, once you're about 150 over 95, then you really want to get the blood pressure controlled first pharmacologically, then introduce exercise as a prescription. So that's when uh, you would be taking them hand in hand, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological strategies for managing that particular risk factor. Uh, there's a few things I, I totally want to pick up on there. I thought, first of all, we could maybe do a deep dive into cholesterol and then, and then hypertension. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, and that's something I'd definitely love to revisit later on and, and remind us if we don't, is that, that cutoff, you said 150 over 95, that, that sounds like something we should definitely talk about. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons 
that I, I, I really wanted to talk to you in the podcast is that, you know, countless times with people coming through the door with high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and often it's quite hard to know how to give them specific advice. I find this particularly with cholesterol. I think a lot of the, the, the evidence says that actually dietary cholesterol, or the evidence I've read, it might be wrong, that dietary cholesterol doesn't have a huge impact on, on our, our blood cholesterol. Uh, and so I'm left in this, this kind of this limbo being like, I don't really know what the best advice to give for cholesterol is. And, you know, maybe I've thrown you in the deep end here, but are you, are you able to, to talk us through how you advise people managing their cholesterol with lifestyle? Well, well, I think I mean, it's a good point. I mean, generally speaking, um, what what I do, sort of, which is you know not necessarily evidence based, but I do tend to focus on the saturated fat. So once I've seen a, a patient who's coming, uh, they've got coronary disease. You've treated them either pharmacologically or with stents, and they want to know what they can do in terms of their diet, in terms of minimizing or reducing their risk for further events. I do address. Their, their consumption of saturated fat, in particular processed meat. So I do emphasize personally that they should avoid processed meat from their diet. It tends to be very high in salt. It tends to be high in saturated fat. And I think that they, there is evidence to suggest that uh, um, that impacts on cardiovascular events in the future. And, and we've seen that from from observational studies where you, you take huge populations whereby their consumption of saturated fat is low, they're predominantly vegetarian, particularly in the US, you have um, the, the seven church evangelist communities and, and you, you see that they tend to live longer, they tend to not really uh, encounter much of the way of cardiovascular disease. So certainly from that observational data, we know that that is reasonable advice. So when it comes to the numbers then, when I see them Again, from a secondary prevention perspective, I want to drive their cholesterol down pharmacologically less than uh, a total cholesterol of less than 3.8 and the LDL less than 1.8. Again, the, dev the evidence is robust. The lower the LDL, the better. So I suppose secondary prevention is a different beast. I think in that context, there is no argument that pharmacological uh, intervention with statins and potentially with other lipid-lowering medication, uh, you know, like your inclisiran, PCSK9 inhibition, um, bempedoic acid are required. In the primary setting, there's some evidence that, generally speaking, you want the total cholesterol to be less than uh, 4.6. But again, one must pay attention to the ratio. So it's your ratio. You, you really want to look at the subgroups. You want to look at your LDL. And that LDL, it's safe if it's less than 2.6, okay? So if you do your, check your cholesterol in your patient, their total cholesterol is less than, less than 4.6, LDL is less than 2.6, then you may be okay, providing that they don't have any other cardiovascular risk factors, then you can start talking about dietary intervention and focuses on that. However, if the LDL is, is above 2.6, you do your Q-risk score, it's above 10%, then you have to start thinking about introducing statins, particularly their other additional risk factors, diabetes, etc. Does, does that, is that, is that helpful? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think 
One of the things that that I've, I've Peter Attire, I don't know if anyone's come across him, but he's a, an American metabolic specialist who's written a book and podcast series. And he's, he's actually surprisingly a, a big advocate for lifestyle medicine, but often in conjunction, conjunction with statins. So I think that's helpful that your know, statins aren't necessarily the enemy. I have a few things I wanted to pick up on. And this is a podcast about physical activity. And, and I, I will come to that. But first of all, you mentioned processed meats. And I think, Joe, in, in a really helpful way, that's getting a lot of, of attention at the moment about the harms of processed meat. I I try and be vegetarian, often not great at it at times. I describe myself as as a vegetarian without a moral compass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, what about what about dairy? I, I love cheese, and and I find that I'm probably not the only one that as I try to eat veggie, my cheese consumption goes up. What's your advice on on dairy intake and, and cholesterol? Well, and I think, and I think that is with with most uh, people. I think when you do take in one of the food groups from your diet completely, I mean, I'm certainly advocating for removing processed meat. I think we can certainly do without that. But when you start taking uh, um, uh, certainly certain food groups from the diet, you tend to increase in other areas. So, so I think I think dairy, I think for taste in moderation, I think you know that can be compromised. Um, but you know, I think it is a challenge when, you know, it, it is flavorsome and you, you can add it, you know, you know, sparingly to, to, to foods, to salads, uh, um, to encourage you to, 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 you know, to, to eat, to cons- consume that in, in, in a moderate way. But I think it is challenging to start removing too much too soon from the diet. So I, I, I will never be sort of harsh on that. I mean, I've switched for, for milk, I've switched to, to oat milk and, 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 almond milk so and i think you know the family have moved towards that now so that that works really well um my, my the children love cheese uh, i i i i'll have it sparingly but you know i'm it's, it's not something that um i can't live without uh, but i think you you got to you got to see how you you fit in and, and see 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 what works for you but i wouldn't be too like you said without a moral comp i wouldn't be too harsh on yourself in, in this regard well thank you susie quick question yeah, the irony is not lost on me that my consulting room, um, if I have my blinds up, looks directly onto a well-known bakery. So occasionally I'm having these lifestyle discussions about cutting out processed meats with my lovely Scottish uh, patients and in whilst the smell of bacon butties. I mean, it's just awful. You couldn't make it up. Oh, and next door to that, there's the funeral, um, the, the funeral place as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> ideal location, ideal location. Pulling it onto the, the thing that I'm certainly passionate about, physical activity, what role does, does physical activity have in, in cholesterol management? Again, I mean, it's difficult. I think, um, you know, when I do think about physical activity and lifestyle, I, I've, never, I've not thought about it in, in, in the isolated risk factors. You know, I look at it sort of in, in encompassing your, your overall cardiovascular risk. So, so I, I certainly think that... Um, you know, physical activity, irrespective of what your cholesterol level is, is going to be beneficial for you. So I think once you've identified that patient with um, high cholesterol or, or the cure risk that you're concerned about, then you're down the line of thinking about them engaging in a um, in a physical activity that that potentially that hopefully they're going to enjoy themselves. So you can start having that conversation with them. I always start off with what is it that they enjoy doing? Or I make the assumption that they exercise and I ask them what their main form of exercise is. 
um, and then you have a starting point from which to build upon. Um, so, for example, very commonly within my demographic, it's usually walking, walking the dog as a main form of exercise. Um, so we then start to build from there, you know, making sure are they doing it on a daily basis? Are they doing it in a duration that you may find acceptable? And then you can start encouraging the role of uh, uh, resistance exercise, but that's very important. So they should be walking at least three to five times per week for endurance and then resistance, maybe two to three times a week. Uh, and then you start adding in balance with your yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong. So I, I have that sort of step rise approach uh, um, to building up uh, um, for, for that sort of optimal exercise regime. Oh, that's really helpful. There's a few, just a few things I wanted to mention. And I, first of all, I, I love the idea of assuming that people do something because it's super non-confrontational. I think that's really helpful. Uh, I think often we're taught never to assume anything, but sometimes saying, oh, what kind of exercise do you like to do it is a helpful non-confrontational way of approaching things. Uh, yeah. I'd like to know what Susie's thoughts are on that. But uh, I was just thinking that I assume all my patients are not moving from their chairs very often. So that's where you and I differ. But, you know, we're meeting our patients where they are and we're nudging them forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, it's, like you said, it's a, it's a demographic uh, thing. I mean, we, being in the in, in this part of the world, I find myself encouraged to go for walks. You know, go for runs, spend time outdoors as much as possible. So, so, so yeah. So, um, it, it tends to work. And if they don't do any exercise, they 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 are forthcoming with that, and then we can start and build from there. Absolutely. I think that the other thing I just want to pick up on was the partly the, the resistance training, but also the aerobic element. I think that they're both backbones of what we should be advising. One of the things I, I often find tricky is, you know, I, I tell patients, well, the advice is 150 minutes of, of aerobic exercise a week. And I think that's that's almost a meaningless statistic that I, that I churn out. And so I think breaking it down into five 30-minute dog walks with a with a steep hill that you get out of breath on is is helpful. I think... Yeah, yeah. Also, introducing the resistance elements really important, and we'll come on to that in in the the hypertension discussion just just after this. But I pulled out just before the talk some of the the American Heart Association statements on cholesterol, and they they basically they've got a few things or statistics from twenty twenty one where they say aerobic exercise is helpful at increasing HDL by uh, and also dropping triglycerides, but resistance training is is the best form of exercise for dropping LDL. So it's quite helpful. It also interestingly said that smoking cessation increases HDL, but doesn't have an impact on, on LDL. Uh, and uh, diet has a has a, a limited effect uh, on, on cholesterol as well. I think, I think you're right. I think whilst addressing the, the biochemistry with the lipid profile, um, ultimately you have to take the patients in, 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 in context. So you have to look at you know, uh, uh, what's, what, what is their BMI? Do you need to encourage them to, to, uh, uh, for, for weight management therapy? So for them to be active or, you know, addressing their diet. Um, and I think, again, you also have to look at, you know, their food choices. Is it related to stress? Is it related to poor sleep? Is there a metabolic syndrome involvement? So, so you're absolutely right. You have to take all of the other factors that may, may have a, an effect on, on, on th those levels. And I think, you know, one thing I learned yesterday in, in my talk is when you do have that high cholesterol, 
profile, don't forget to check the renal function. Don't forget to check the thyroid function because what you don't want to be caught out is a situation whereby you know, you're treating the, the biochemistry in isolation without considering other drivers for, for that number. And then you have that separate beast, which is the, the familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, and, you know, tackling that would be slightly different as well. So, so you're absolutely right. You, you have to, um, you know, take all these things into, into context. But, but that, that's very interesting in terms of the, the effect of dietary changes, exercise, on the subunits of, of the lipid profile, which, which you know, you, you, you've taught me something today, certainly. I, I think you're right. And I'm probably trying to oversimplify this. It's such a holistic picture that exercise and lifestyle has an impact across all our health and well-being. And my, my brain often tries to oversimplify that. The one thing, the biggest thing that came out of that reading that I did was that the biggest thing to, or consistent across all forms of cholesterol and triglyceride was weight loss and if you if people lose weight their ldl falls their hdl goes up and their triglycerides fall as well and so encouraging weight loss is, is really important and, and obviously that's multifactorial but but physical activity has a role in that no no absolutely absolutely and, and the key thing when you come to i mean what i mean this is probably something that we'll probably talk about but but you know what what's, what are your thoughts about the the, the glp1 um agonists and and how that can drive down uh, weight in the absence of physical activity. That may be something that maybe leave for another discussion, but I just thought that what, now, now you mention it, uh, what, what your thoughts are on that <laughs> for both of you, actually. There is an absolutely brilliant Lancet article that was written by uh, the BSLM Vice President Ellen Fallows together with Baron Anand and one other person, and I apologise that I can't remember their name, but I haven't met them personally, whereas the other two I have, which addresses that very thing um, where, you know, yes, they are fantastic with their outcomes, but unless we're addressing the driving factors, you know, as soon as you take away the medication, the problem comes back. Um, but you're right, that is a whole podcast on its own and possibly out with the physical activity uh, movement prescription podcast, but um, but definitely one I, I would love to talk to you offline about Edney at some stage. Um, but let's focus now on hypertension because we see so much high blood pressure, especially where I work um, in a very deprived area where people get sicker quicker and lots of it at the same time, lots of multimorbidity, um, constantly dealing with, with high blood pressure. So in terms of physical activity, what role does that have in people with high blood pressure? Well, I mean, I mean you're absolutely right, Susie. Uh, we, we know high, high blood pressure or hypertension is, is, a, is certainly a common problem. You know, one in three people over the age of 50 have hypertension. And out of that, we know that certainly from a secondary care perspective, 20 to 40% of them already have uh, end organ uh, involvement or end organ damage. So, it, it, it's 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 certainly a, a challenge, and, and as I mentioned before, when when I do see these patients in secondary care, um, usually it's for those who are maybe a little bit more challenging, a bit more resistant. So my strategy is always to to number one exclude any secondary causes. So they do go through echocardiograms, renal profile, albumin creatinine ratio, CT scans, looking for coarctation and other uh, um, causes of uh, um, secondary hypertension. Um, they get the echo to primarily exclude any end organ damage. Um, I may you know, consider cardiac MRI scans if, if necessary. Um, uh, and ultimately, 
in some cases, I even think about whether or not there's a role for to exclude coronary disease. So, so, so you know, these patients are complex, and they they warrant that thorough uh, investigation. Um, and I think, and I think it is important because, you know, like mentioned before, certainly if the blood pressure um, meets stage one hypertension, then there is a role to prescribe physical activity as a um, as a first line therapy. Uh, and we know from uh, a meta large meta analysis that physical activity, you know, aerobic exercise after about four months can drop your systolic blood pressure down by ten millimeters mercury, diastolic down by eight millimeters mercury, uh, um, and you know, a tablet can, you know, a, a, a losartan or one of the, the sartans um, essentially can drop it down to about six millimeters mercury. So. We know that physical activity can have a role within that stage one hypertension. Once you get to the point of blood pressure, systolic, 150 over 95, as mentioned before, then I think what you want to do is introduce pharmacotherapy first, get that stabilized, and then introduce uh, uh, physical activity. Uh, so yeah, so certainly there is that, that would be how I would address uh, and combine those two strategies. And I learned something very interesting this week um, in our local diabetes newsletter. I, I was doing a spotlight on sleep um, this month. And one of, one of my local sort of enthusiasts was telling me about um, the link between obstructive sleep apnea um, and, and treatment resistant hypertension. And it's, and it's a huge link and underappreciated, I think, in, certainly in primary care. Is that something that you come across a lot as well? Uh, um, no, I mean, uh, that's certainly something I take into consideration because, like I said, when I when I see patients in an outpatient setting, I, I, I do a comprehensive lifestyle medicine clerking. So I ask them about diet, exercise, weight management, sleep, uh, and, and stress. So I hope within that context, I'm able to tease out, you know, the quality of their sleep and then consider whether or not uh, they need to be sent for a sleep study um, to my respiratory colleagues to exclude obstructive sleep apnea. Because I know that, you know, when you have these periods of um, um, uh, um, hypocapnia or, or, or acapnia during sleep, you know, that can drive your sympathetic nervous system uh, and drive your adrenergic surge and ultimately increase uh, systemic resistance and, and as, a as a result, increase in blood pressure. So I think it is something that definitely we know about the mechanism. It's something we should really screen for um, to ensure that we get to the bottom of the drivers for, for high blood pressure. Callum was looking at some papers. I think he was going to comment on those now. Yeah, I think you alluded to it, Edney, actually. A paper just from last month by Edwards et al., which was a, a huge RCT of over 270 papers. It was really interesting. Basically, analyzed the different forms of exercise and what were the best at, at dropping blood pressure all the bottom line i think is that all exercise was beneficial in terms of treating blood pressure aerobic was actually the least beneficial and the most beneficial was isometric exercise so uh, i really i really like the the outcome is 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 really quite clear it's worth checking out but the thing that that struck me the most about about the outcome is the isometric resistance training is really great for all age groups because it doesn't require weights or or really any movement. So we're talking about wall squats, planks, and other static forms of exercise. So I think those type of things are great for for 
kind of trans, uh, sorry, cross age and cross generation. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a really cool outcome, which is you know wolf squats and planks. I think I think, uh, and if you look at some of the the more recent data, I mean, there was a there was the Copenhagen Heart Study um, that looked at th- it was published in the Hypertension in twenty twenty, and it looked at um, uh, patients who have LVH, so left ventricular hypertrophy, versus uh, um, a group of patients with no evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. Uh, and followed them over time in terms of their cardiovascular events. And he found that actually, you know, in moderate to high intensity exercise was much more beneficial compared to mild exercise like walking and obviously compared to inactivity. So there is data coming out now whereby they, you know, isolating the role of resistance or high intensity exercise, which, which would falls into the line potentially of CrossFit. So I, I do CrossFit once a week. And, and I think that's probably the, the, the you know, obviously it's, 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 it's the, the ideal, but that, that's what you want to aim for because it incorporates both, like you said, isometric body weight exercises, as well as, uh, um, you know, the more weightlifting and then your, your shorter endurance exercises. So I think that really encompasses uh, an ideal program. Go on, Susan. I've put my hand up there because I've got alarm bells going off in my head. As a as a frontline GP who sees some fairly unhealthy Scottish folk, I'm worried that if I suggest hit to some of them high intensity training, they're going to drop dead with a heart attack, which would be going against everything. I I you know first do do no harm. Do no harm, absolutely. <laughs> do no harm. This is not for the average. This is not for the average. But you always have you always want to know what the ideal is, right? You want to have something to aim for. <laughs> Susie, I totally agree. And, and where, how do we meet people where they're at? And, and resources, especially around this field of, of resistance training and balance, can be really hard to find. There's a few good places to check out. Versus Arthritis has got some resources. And Age UK has got some resources as well, just to guide people towards. Susie, I think you'd also highlighted some to me previously too, but my memory is a sieve, so apologies. Oh, resources for GPs. The Motivate to Move resources are fantastic and the Moving Medicine conversations with patients. They've got them for all the conditions. Um, and I and I also love teaching the, the medical students. There's a, um, the Faculty for Sports and Exercise Medicine have got um, exercise on prescription for all the chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease. So, you know, if, you, if you're somebody that teaches medical students, GP trainees, and actually quite relevant for us as well at this stage, I think that's a brilliant resource that can be looked at. Sure, sure. One of the big take-homes I want to just bring out here is that there's more and more evidence coming out about the importance of resistance training as part of our overall health. There was a paper, again, there's been so much coming out recently, but just from a few weeks ago, that basically it it looked at people's adherence to WHO guidelines for physical activity. Usually that's just done for the 150 minutes a week, and we say about a third of people are inactive. But they included the two resistance sessions per week that's recommended and, and only 17% of adults or 13.5% of older adults were achieving the guidelines. And so it's certainly something that we can focus on and work on and, and certainly something that we should be looking to advise patients to do again within the, within the remit of what they can do as opposed to, you know, sending them to the nearest CrossFit class. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think, I think you're right. And I think that's when we have to collaborate with our cardiac rehab 
uh, experts. I mean, these these uh, you know they're experts in terms of determining the intensity of exercise based on the the pre morbid state of the of patients. So I think I think that that is also a very useful uh, resource in terms of experts. You know, they they're able to use the Borg scale. Um, doing functional uh, capacity assessments before engaging in exercise. And I think that's very useful. They will consider other uh, uh, um, comorbidities, you know, atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and sort of gauge the exercise strategies based on that. So so I, I think that, you know, in, in, in my, certainly my private practice, I work very closely with, with a, a cardiac rehab fitness expert to, to help the, um, obviously my more vulnerable clients. And Callum, I know that here um, in local to us, we've got um, our local leisure facilities have got trained um, physical trainers who, who work with people getting back to fitness. And I think, you know, once you know about these resources in your community, utilize them. I, I think our role is not necessarily to, to hold our patients' hands and take them. I think it is about giving them the evidence those brief interventions, isn't it? And and sort of, you know, people listen to what their doctors say. There's enough evidence out there to show that the patients listen to what we say. Yeah, I agree. And, and one of the things I, I highlighted in, in as a question was, how do we involve other healthcare services in, in delivering a, a holistic approach? One of the things that's so, you know, inspiring about talking to you, Edna, is that as a secondary care provider, you're also really engaged in lifestyle medicine and I think that that approach if it's heard from from throughout the healthcare journey people are more likely to engage there's loads of resources out there you know Susie you mentioned some of the local uh, kind of local gym and 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 uh, leisure providers anything else you'd recommend Edney to people to engage well, well I mean like, like I said I, I really I, I I've accepted that the challenge of really lifestyle intervention and changing behavior uh, and the direction of, you know, huge population bases, it's not something that, you know, can be done in isolation. I think as health professionals, yeah, I've realized that actually once I've initiated therapy and treatment, um, I need a collaborative effort from my colleagues, you know, dietitian, cardiac fitness experts, psychologists, mind body experts because what i feel that is important and i think the gold standard is providing that comprehensive holistic approach to cardiovascular health and well-being so that that's what led me to set up my uh my lifestyle medicine program uh, is the my new self program um it's called my new self it's, you can see it in my website and essentially it just uh, uh, in, involves uh six experts who we all work collaboratively uh, and we deliver lifestyle medicine and preventative care holistically to, to clients virtually. So I think that's the really key message is realizing that it can be difficult to find in the, the, the right experts, um, whether you go to a, a fitness establishment or a gym or, you know, you go to a, a, a local uh, uh, um, service uh, within your area. What you need, what clients want is to find all these experts in one stop shop to deliver the, 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 the service that they need. I'm going to just pull out the, the just kind of, we've been going a while and, and towards the end, but there's one thing I wanted to bring up and, and I didn't forewarn you about this, Edney, so I'm sorry, but one of the, the concerns I've heard regarding exercise, particularly in, in, in people with cardiovascular disease is safety. 
And how, what advice do we give to patients to say, look, not only is this safe for you to do, but this is, this is both beneficial and, and, you know, life improving. And also on, on the same, the kind of the same side of the coin, how do we get that message to family members? Because I think family members are are often the key here because they can either be super supportive and engage and, and really help and facilitate people being more active. On the flip side of that, they could be slightly paternalistic and overly protective and say, no, you're not doing that because you've had a heart attack. So yeah, how do we, what advice can we give and and how do we engage the the wider family and community? Well, I I think it's it's an excellent question. Uh, And I think, um, again, it's education, um, motivation and and, and inspiration. I think in, in the first instance, again, turning to our cardiac rehab colleagues, you know, when a patient has had a heart attack, which is at the point where they're most vulnerable and they've been treated, you know, uh, we have facilities to engage them within 72 hours into a cardiac rehab program where you have these expert nurses that will talk to them firstly through their medication, make sure they're tolerating it well, but then can devise a program that would be a step-by-step program to get them to the level that they were once uh, achieving. And that is the safest environment in which they can start building that confidence and be reassured that, you know, it is safe to exercise. Um, so I think once the exercise certainly is supervised, they are, they are involved in the building of that program. I think that will be the first steps to getting them back to, to uh, what we consider to be a, an active lifestyle. And I think that's why I talk about psychology, because... It may not necessarily be that they're physically incapable of doing it, but once they've faced, whether it's a cardiac arrest or a significant heart attack, then psychologically that's had an impact on them. And what you then need is cognitive behavioral therapists or exercise behavioral psychologists to help to unpick some of the barriers to exercise that may be limiting uh, uh, um, uh, patients in engaging. So I think it is a multidisciplinary approach, really, to 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 get uh, um, to get to the to the crux of of, of uh, these challenges. And in primary care, we don't always have um, access to all of these things, and often have to, as the, the the last surviving generalists, do a lot of this ourselves. So you know, a lot of what we do in in our primary care, hopefully before they get to you, Edney, um, is try and help. Um, people people to see what's possible, to understand the benefits of even just doing little things like standing up in the, the commercial break when they're watching telly, you know, breaking down that sedentary behavior, avoiding what we refer to as the weekend warrior effect, you know, so even GPs sitting on their bottoms for nine hours in a day and then doing a half marathon at the weekend, actually that's still sedentary behavior during the week and you can't undo that with your weekends. But it's helping people see what's possible, building it in, um, using those teachable moments, I think, and providing the right support. I, I agree. And, and Etna, you, you talked about the psychological element and having to engage people where they're at. And I think often as, as GPs, you feel un, underprepared and ill-equipped with which to, to do that. We, we talked about it briefly last time and, and actually to kind of try and address that, particularly in the physical activity space, we've done some interviews with Dr. Hamish Reid on motivational interviewing and and also an, an interview with Naomi Molnar, who's a behavioural scientist, which were both really fascinating and, and hopefully give a bit of an insight into tips and hints and, and, and tricks with which to, to kind of 
help people and engage them where they're at and, and encourage them to, to be successful in making changes. Sure. That's, 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 that's fantastic. And, and um, I mean, in, in your practices, how easy it is to, how, how easy is it to access, you know, like you said, the, the, the uh, behavioral scientists and, and cognitive behavioral therapists. I mean, is there sort of a signposting that you, 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 you can do for patients who you feel may need that? Or like you said, you have to do it all on your own is predominantly, is that, is that right? Welcome to general practice, Edney. <laughs> There's very little resource for that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. I've not really experienced that. I think certainly if people have depression or anxiety, there's there's cognitive behavioral therapy available. And often that's delivered online by, by online platforms. I've not seen any out with that and particularly not in the realms of lifestyle medicine. And so it, it's left to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just as we draw to a close, Edney, any... Any key resources that you'd recommend people to to have a look at or 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 check out? I've got the nice guidelines and and we'll stick them up in the show notes for for when the podcast is is released. But is there anything else that you'd you'd recommend? I mean, I, I mean, if you're really you know interested, from certainly from a cardiology perspective, um, there is uh, sports cardiology. So the the ESC have have a section on sports cardiology, which is you certainly um, gives you um, some insight in terms of cardiac um, uh, exercise physiology and cardiac rehabilitation. Um, the um, European Society of Preventative uh, Care or European Association of Preventative Cardiology, that they have an annual conference, uh, which next one is going to be in, in April next year, 2024. That will be held in Athens. Um, so, again, that's where I resource uh, um, you know, information with regards to implementing um, preventative care into my my daily practice. So, so I think those are the, the big sides. So, yeah, you can find you know lots of useful information within the ESC, um, and like I said, the the European Association of Preventative Cardiology. They have a conference which which is in is in Athens next year. So that that's another port of call. Just the ESC, the European Sports Council. European Sport Cardiologies. Yeah, the European Society of Cardiology. So the ESC, the European Society of Cardiology. Uh, and within that, you have the sub-task uh, um, um, forces or sub-societies and one being the preventative cardiology. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. How about you, Susie? Any resources to recommend? Well, I think I recommended some earlier on, but I'm just thinking, right, how am I going to work in some prescriptions for planks and wall, wall squats next week? That's my plan. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think, I think give it a go. I think honestly, you know, it sounds challenging, but I think that you know, patients have to start somewhere. You know, we all do. You know, when I started my first CrossFit class, I was last in the group, you know, and you, you know, you've got to start somewhere. And then the key thing really, I think is consistency is, you know, putting the egos aside, deciding that this is the lifestyle pathway that you want to embark on. And then just be consistent with it. And it's, it's amazing how people start seeing improvements in something that they felt that they could never do. And all of a sudden, you know, now they're, they're, they're hugely engaged in it. So I, I, I would, it's like I said, it sounds sort of, you know, far to reach. But I think, you know, uh, you, you would be amazed as to the achievements that you can see in a couple of, in a few weeks. I think that's a really cool place to finish, Edney, but the take home of consistency to kind of go alongside 
moderation of what we eat and, and also exercise that more is better, some is better than none. Absolutely, absolutely. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been really great. And thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we can kind of continue it and then see where it leads. No, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much.